0: a controversial police tactic.
1: The inner workings of a Mr Big undercover police operation have been laid bare to a jury in a high court murder trial. The idea on paper is simple. The police create a fake criminal gang, implicate the suspect in it, until eventually he or she confesses.
0: Originating in Canada, Mr Big Stings can help the police catch killers when nothing else is working. A very useful tool that the police have in their toolbox, utilised properly, with the rules set out can be very uh, beneficial to the public. But not everyone agrees.
1: Highly dangerous technique, prone to creating false confessions, uh, and it needs to be looked at and utilised with a great deal of caution so that we don't end up putting innocent people in jail.
0: Mr Big is so contentious, it's not used in the US or the UK. But it is part of New Zealand's crime-fighting toolkit, And it led to a man from a tiny town in Manawatu being accused of murdering his best friend. David Little was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 11 years at
2: the High Court in Wellington today. He was found guilty of murdering his friend Brett Hall, who went missing from his Whanganui
0: property in 2011. His body has never been found. But then... In March 2021, in a stinging judgement, the Court of Appeal quashed David Little's conviction. It agreed the Mr Big operation had gone too far, and evidence from it should never have been heard by the jury. Kia ora, I'm Tom Kitchen, and today on The Detail, we go behind the scenes of a new RNZ podcast called Mr Little meets Mr Big.
2: Well, my name is Stephen Price, and I'm here because for the last five years or so, I've been working on a podcast with Radio New Zealand um, about a murder trial. Well, it's sort of about a murder trial, but it's also about a police sting that led to the murder trial. And it's sort of about the police sting, but it's also about kind of the criminal justice system as a whole. And then it's also about kind of the way we tell stories in the criminal justice system and
0: in life. There are a few key characters in the story. The first, of course, is David Little. He's a builder from the little town of Halcombe in the
2: Manawatu. And he was mates with a guy called Brett Hall who lived out in the WAPS out behind like 30 minutes drive beyond Whanganui. He had a piece of land up there where he had a little campsite and was building a house and David Little was a builder so he was building it for him. And then Brett disappears and there's this massive search for him because they figure he must have just got lost in the bush and nobody finds him. They don't know where he is. And for a start they think well, look, this is probably some of Brett Hall's drug-dealing mates because he was into drug-dealing and he'd been in prison for that before. But then they start increasingly looking at David Little, who's not really answering their questions very satisfactorily, and the suspicion turns on him.
0: And then how did Mr Big get involved? Well, they looked at David
2: and they thought he's probably the one that did it, but they didn't have enough evidence against him. They waited a few years and then decided, look, we're going to run this sting on him. That's where Mr. Big comes in. The Mr. Big is a type of sting where the police, they form a kind of a mock, stage-managed criminal gang and they organise to make contact with their suspect in a kind of an innocent way, befriend him and slowly bring him into this criminal organisation. And then at the end of it all, they hope to get him to confess to the crime.
0: You can find out in the podcast just how David Little was sucked in by Mr Big and ended up confessing to killing his friend. But to summarise what happened next, Little was arrested in 2014, and in 2019, a jury found him guilty of murder. He was jailed for life with a minimum non-parole period of 11 years. But then, just two years later in 2021, The Court of Appeal quashed Little's conviction and dismissed the charges against him. In the judgment, the police were criticised for the significant psychological pressure they put on Little. Here's how Stephen Price first got interested in the case.
2: It was a post that was done by Andrew Geddes on a blog. Andrew Geddes is an academic in Otago and a friend of mine. I mean I'm I'm paraphrasing he said oh my gosh you won't believe this this sting that the police are doing in Canada and there was a big court case about it in the Supreme Court there and it described the sting and he was kind of a bit agog at it as was I when I read about it I thought I'm kind of amazed the police would do something like this it's fiendishly clever um, but also kind of evil then at the end he said you might be wondering whether the New Zealand police are doing this (laughs) I couldn't possibly comment (laughs) is what he says so it was clear that uh, we were, and in fact, there was a case working its way through the New Zealand courts about it and whether or not the police ought to be allowed to do it and I started following that case um, it 's the witchman case
0: it 's been revealed that an elaborate undercover operation was used by police to gain a confession in the case of a baby girl fatally shaken by her father. Tawera Witchman was also sentenced in the High Court in Wellington today. He was jailed for three years and ten months for the manslaughter of baby Teagan.
2: The court split all the way up and then even at the top court they split 3-2 on the sting and whether it was fair really, whether it was lawful and whether the evidence that it gathered could be used. Um, and I tried to contact Mr. Witchman um, to see if he would be interested in doing a podcast series on it, and he wasn't. So I discovered that there was another <laughs> case working its way through the system, also involving a Mr. Big Sting, and I got interested in that one, and that's the one That's the one involving Mr. Little.
0: So what kind of point of the process did you start picking it up? Where was it through the courts? Well,
2: this was five years ago, and he had been arrested. He'd been in prison for a couple of years because there were delays on getting the case to trial, um, and in part they're due to some really astonishing failures of the police to turn over material that was relevant to the case, to the defence. And they were also waiting for the Witchman case to be decided because that was going to clarify the law about um, what sort of whether, whether Mr Big evidence could be used or not. Eventually they let him uh, David Little out on bail, and at that point I kind of got interested in it and started following it along. So I went in into to the lawyer's office and met with the lawyer, his lawyers and him, and this was before the actual trial got underway. And then I went along to the trial, which was up in Palmerston North. The trial falls over after about five days, and they have to have another one a year later. So I went along to that as well.
0: This is a five-year project that you've done. It's a huge time, isn't it? Yes and no. Yes, yes, and, and, no. yes and no? Why? <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like I've been
2: <laughs> working nose to the grindstone for five years on this. There have been times, such as the time when the, the trials were going on, where I was... I mean, more or less full-time. The main trial went all day, five days a week for nine weeks. But then most of those five years, I was just doing something else because things were happening in the background and it wasn't really, you know, hitting the courts. There was nothing to report on. I was sort of quietly reading up on Mr. Big and reading psychological studies and about false confessions and things. But it wasn't, um, I mean, it wasn't consuming all my time.
0: But, I mean, it must have been quite a process to get people to talk to you. I mean... How did you actually get people to talk to you? What was the process you went through there?
2: That's a good question. I mean, I I met with David Little at the beginning, and he made it clear to me that he was going to talk to me, but only after the trial was completely over, which is fair enough because if he sat down and started answering my questions about what had gone on, then the first people who'd want to um, hear his answers to those questions would be the Crown. Uh, That was fair enough, and I figured I'd talk to him afterwards. And at at the end of the day, he decided he didn't want to talk to me. But his lawyers did. They sat down for a long interview with me, And in terms of all the other people who pop up on the podcast, most of them, they gave evidence at the trial in the nine weeks. So I had this rich source of material about exactly what had gone on, not just the evidence against David Lillard and the evidence suggesting that he didn't do it, but also, you know, the jury got to listen to 30 hours of The Sting. So I got to hear all of that as well. And then there was a lot of evidence given about The Sting, where the defense is kind of cross-examining the people who were involved in The Sting. So I had kind of most of the material that I needed. Um, I also went out and talked to some experts about, you know, how this thing's working out in Canada. where They've, they've run this sting like more than 300 times, probably more than 600 times in Canada. And I talked to some experts about false confessions.
0: You spoke to Brett Hall's family, I understand.
2: Yeah, I spoke to his mum.
0: Yeah, what was it like to speak to her?
2: She's lovely. I really like Livona. And the people actually my heart goes out to in this podcast are Livona uh, and Helen Little, David's wife. 'Cause they're both, I think, innocent victims of this, no matter how you you look at it. But Lavona, you know, she's really cut up about the fact that her son's gone. I mean, she told me about how great he was with the grandkids and how, you know, he spent time in the bush with them and, you know, how he was kind of an outdoors guy and he was building his dream home up there and for her, she still to this day just wants to know what happened, where he is. She just wants I mean it's cliche to call it closure, but that's what she wants. Um, and she really doesn't have it at the moment. She kind of got it when David Little was convicted and then that was overturned. I think she's like many victims in that way in that she wants to be able to mourn the loss properly and, and have the door properly closed, and it's not properly closed.
0: Why do you think she was so open to talking to you?
2: I think she's just a very straightforward person. I'm sure not all all people who've suffered like that would be like that, and I would have respected it if she didn't want to.
0: Did you speak to David Little's family at all?
2: Well, I wanted to. And again, um, Helen Little said during the trial, I would talk to me afterwards, as did David, and they've changed their mind about that. And I, you know, my hunch is probably the lawyers have said to them, look, what have you got to gain here? <laughs> You've got off now, and they can't prosecute you again. The case is over. He's going to do this thing that's going to... It's, it's clear that he's going to raise questions about the Mr Bigs thing, which is the thing you're really angry about you don't really need to be in that and be asked questions about your involvement that um, you know might lead you to say something that you don't mean to say.
0: Was there anyone else that you really wanted to talk to but you didn't get the chance to? Police. <laughs> why, why would they not talk to you?
2: I think the police don't usually talk about these things. I, I, I guess, I mean, they're very, very protective of the people who are undercover. And so actually it was, it was never going to be likely I would talk to any of the undercover people. Um, But even police generally about the sting and whether it was justified and how they were dealing with the concerns about it. Because it's not just me and it's not just the psychological experts uh, who are expressing concerns. The Law Commission looked at it and they said, oh, this is a bit problematic. Um, And we think maybe Mr Big
0: Sting should be better regulated because they're not regulated very well at the moment. And the pros and cons of Mr Big Sting's are something the podcast tries to grapple with. Here's RNZ's Justin Gregory, one of the executive producers of Mr Little meets Mr Big, talking about a couple of Stephen's most intriguing interviews.
1: One of the really heart-rending aspects is that he speaks to a chap called Bruce Morecambe, whose son Daniel, a 13-year-old boy, went missing a few years ago in Australia. And um, the person that the police suspected for him, they ran a Mr Big technique on him, and he... He led them to the body of of Daniel, and so you know Bruce obviously has a, a particular take on the case and that's a it's a hard earned and justified take on um on the technique. It's hard to get individuals who have been involved or the subject of these cases to want to talk because it's a pretty traumatizing thing, and a lot of them just want to move on whether they've been convicted or not we do talk to a Canadian expert called Mark Stobie who himself was um, uh, suspected of murdering his wife and Canadian police were going to run a Mr Big Sting on him. Um, And apparently the advice that came back was that they thought he was unlikely to be too stupid enough to fall for it. So they didn't. But he then went on from there. He'd been like a communications chief in Manitoba in in Canada. He then went back to school and got a PhD in this area and is now an expert in the Mr Big field. And he's very pro-Mr Big, despite being someone who nearly had the the sting run on him. Like Stephen, Justin would have liked to have spoken to the police for the podcast. We would have loved to have had the police come in and and say their part on it. I I have some sympathy there... Their basic stance is that it's to protect the undercover um, officers who might be involved in other cases. And this is New Zealand, so one of us will know them, you know. Um, We do have inside the series, for the first time, we're actually, we're not playing the tapes of the actual Sting. We are playing recreations of them. We have them, we're not allowed to play them. And so we have actors performing those roles. But for the first time in New Zealand, you're going to hear an undercover Sting as it happens. So... You're not allowed to play those tapes, nope. is that because it's
0: suppressed? Or...
1: It's to protect the identities of the, of the undercover officers, mm-hmm. who may well be involved in operations now. Mm. We don't know. Mm. They won't tell us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but how did you um, kind of recreate what you've heard on those tapes?
1: Oh, two very good actors got into a studio in Wellington with Duncan Smith, who is one of my colleagues here at RNZ. And they had listened to the tapes, and they were transcribed, and they just went for it. And... Um, Stephen, who has heard the original tapes, is quite amazed at how close they got to it. And I mean, what we're talking about is pretty low-key stuff a lot of the time. People are sitting in cars, waiting for something to happen. And you can hear exactly how David Little was duped by a man who called himself Nick. There's a very big effort on Nick's behalf to become friends with David. David has to trust him and like him. It's part of what makes the best big um, technique so... Unsettling that it's based on uh, fundamentally it's based on making a friendship with the accused with the suspect, and then when all that sort of gets ripped out from underneath him as it as it does in later on in the case when he confesses and then then the next day he's arrested. As far as he knows, his best friend's betrayed him. He thought these guys were his mates. It turns out, you can um, hear on the tapes, and we talk about it a bit, that they, they're actually quite rude about him behind his back. They don't think very much of him at all. They find it difficult to be around him, difficult to talk to him. They, they say some fairly terrible things. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of horrendous. Imagine if the person you thought was your best friend turned out to be trying to put you in prison.
0: After researching it, after putting this podcast together... What do you think about Mr Big, and what do you think about that tactic that the police use?
1: Well, it's complicated. I think, as I say, your initial reaction to it is, this can't be legal, this can't be just. And then as you go a bit further into it, you can see that there are legitimate and useful ways to employ the technique. I mean, I I think Stephen comes to a conclusion at some point in the series where he says, "If if it took us to a body or produced a murder weapon... Um, then there might be some quite good things around it. It might be a really useful tool for the police. When it's misused or used too often, and it's not used very often in New Zealand at all, um, I think it's potentially a bit coercive and and abusive. What I do know is that there's precious little legislation around it in, in New Zealand law. They're expensive and they're big and they're difficult operations, but we don't have a great deal of oversight on them and we don't know very much about them. When they're granted, how exactly they operate, there's a lot of information that we haven't been able to get from the police. Back to Stephen.
0: Five years is a long time to work on a podcast. Did he ever think about just giving up? No. I mean, if I'd I'd known at the beginning it was going
2: to take me five years, I might have had another think about it. And I know that when I've been involved in long stories in the past it gets a bit dull, it gets a bit um, repetitive and things, but that's never happened with us. It's it's always been fascinating. And as the story has developed through the courts, there's always been another twist or turn coming along, whether it's about something the police didn't disclose or a trial that falls over or, you know, a person getting convicted and then their appeal and be succeeding. It just it keeps the, the overall story of David Little just keeps
0: turning. What was the most challenging part of spending all this time putting it together?
2: You know what the most challenging thing was? Getting information out of the High Court. I made an application right at the beginning, 2018, 2019, for access to the information that the court had about the case, including all of their rulings leading up to the trials. I got a little bit out of them over the years because every three or four months I'd write back and say, can I have that material I asked for, please? It's only been in the last three or four months that it's actually turned up. They've finally given me a transcript of the entire trial, which would have been really helpful to have you know, um, a year or two ago. And I can understand that there are certain things they can't give me until the trial's over, but the trial's been over for a year and a half now, and a lot of the things they could have given me before the trial, including all of the rulings leading up to it, And I really it was eye-opening how poor they were at responding to my requests. That's my best source of information about reliable information about what's happening and what the facts are. I can be pretty confident if it's in a judgment that's likely to be right.
0: How did you organize all your material?
2: <laughs> a massive filing drawer. I mean I, I ended up relying a lot on my own typed up notes of the trials. Um, which came to about a thousand pages. So I was quite pages. frequently <laughs> quite frequently searching that to find the bits that I could vaguely remember and get to the and and I actually had a recording of the trial, so I could um, then go to the bit of the recording and, and find out exactly what was said. But if I think, oh, it's this bit about a window, I'll search window. <laughs> then I might not find anything about a window, and then later on when I'm just reading through some part of the the, the transcript that I might I might find something that says windox. Because <laughs> so I've just been typing too fast. So, but it wasn't the most reliable record for me to be searching. But I was, you know, I'm delighted to have the transcripts now because it makes that stuff
0: a lot easier. Mr. Big started in Canada. Where else has it been used? Um, well, it's been used
2: here uh, half a dozen times. It's been used in Australia. It hasn't been used in the United States or England, as far as I can tell. And that's kind of interesting because you expect, you'd expect those to be slightly more gung-ho police forces than us.
0: So it has quite a high conviction rate, like 95%, doesn't it?
2: Well, this is what the Canadian Mounties said 10 years or so ago, and it's very hard to check that. And by conviction rate, it doesn't mean that everybody involved in the sting confesses. They say about 75% of people do. I mean, there are examples of different stings being run on different people and both of them confessing, or um, somebody confessing to something that it's obvious they didn't do and there are examples of stings that have been have led to convictions that have been overturned and also the mounties when they're asked about um you know what are the numbers uh, you know how much are they spending on this how often do they run it how often does it actually result in a prosecution and they say they don't keep those records <laughs> and our police wouldn't answer my questions about that either although we do know that in New Zealand the Mr. Big Stings that have been run have been successful in in terms of getting convictions, apart from the David Little one where they got a conviction, it was overturned. And I should say, this has to be said, there are examples and probably more than 100 um, of murderers who have been brought to justice for horrible crimes that were kind of fiendishly covered up. In many cases, that just would not have been exposed without Mr. Big, like
0: Kamal Reddy, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. For eight years, Kamal Reddy thought he'd got away with murder, but an undercover police operation that can now be reported for the first time broke the cold case
2: wide open. Police ran a Mr. Big sting on him, and he ended up leading them. He said, "Look, I buried the body under a bridge, and he took them there, and they dug it up, and there was the body of the woman that they were looking for and the woman's daughter." There's not much doubt in that situation, as our courts found, that they've got the right person. You know, on the scales of justice, as I say in the podcast, this weighs pretty heavily.
0: Do you believe that Mr Big is a tactic, even though it's a bit deceitful, should it be used?
2: I'm torn about that, because it does do really horrible things to the people involved. They, they surveil them to work out you know, all the sorts of details of their lives, to work out which things they might be able to exploit With David Little, he was, you know, reasonably isolated. Um, He was pretty poor. David Little was then brought into the organisation. He was turning down building jobs so that he could be with this organisation. We heard him on the phone with his family during the sting because the police had bugged that. His kids were like, did you get the job? Did you get the job, Dad? And they're all excited about him coming into this new organisation, which was going to pay him well and give him these trips and give him a new car and things. The family be clear about this, did not know about the criminal side of the Mr. Big operation but it's done terrible damage to them.
0: Do you think if you were ever in David Little's situation would you fall for a Mr. Big? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm
2: so steeped in the thing, I don't think so but um, I talked to a Canadian expert, um, a sociologist who studied this thing and he says, he talks about this woman she's having a Mr. Big sting done on her. She's in the car with the undercover officer and a radio programme comes on about Mr Big. And you can imagine the police officer just packing himself at that stage. And what this woman does is she just laughs at it and she goes, oh, who would fall for that? Who would fall for that?
0: And, you know, two weeks later, she's confessing to Mr Big. We still don't know who killed Brett Hull, where he is. Where do you think he is? Who do you think killed him? I think he was probably murdered, yep.
2: I think that's really likely. There is definitely quite a lot of evidence that he was done away in a drug deal and certainly enough to raise reasonable doubt, for me anyway, about David Little. It's not impossible that David Little killed him. There are some holes in his story that, that really make you wonder. I don't think after all this time he's ever going to be found unless there's someone out there. Because, As Lavona, that's Brett Hall, the dead guy's mother, said, somebody out there knows something. And if somebody comes forward, then, you know, maybe the police will move on. But I think the police still think David Little did it. It's hard to see any real progress being made about who did it and where
0: the body is, unless there's fresh information that comes forward. That's it for today. I'm Tom Kitchen. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ensell. Our producers are Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. Thanks to Stephen Price and Justin Gregory. Ma te wa.